2: The morning sun threw a pitiless light across the slick city streets. I walked home thinking how everything was broken. The world. This lousy town. And maybe my heart. Yeah, maybe that one too.
3: Howdy stranger! You seem a little gloomy. Let's turn that frown upside down.
2: Thanks baby. But I got a few things on my mind.
3: You wanna go to Chuck E Cheese?
2: I don't know any Mr. Cheese. Wait, is he the guy Marty Augustine sent to get the bronze dolphin from Teddy Anselmo? Was I just a pawn? A sap, a chump in the big game I couldn't see?
3: No, Chuck E. Cheese is fun. It's like the funnest place ever. We should totally go there. They have party games, an inflatable slide, and a giant rainbow slinky.
2: You're pretty slinky yourself, doll face. I wouldn't mind getting in out of the rain with you for a few hours. But how do I know Big Johnny Lozell didn't send ya?
3: Cause he didn't. Anyway, I was joking about Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese isn't open for breakfast. (laughs) It's 5 (laughs) a.m. Chuck E. Cheese for breakfast.
2: Sugar, I got a little rule. I never go to bed with anybody who's got more problems than I do. And I'm starting to think you fit that description.
3: No, sir, I do not have any problems. It's going to be a beautiful day here in the city, and I am just so happy to be alive. I mean, why wouldn't we be?
2: Some guys put a bullet in my partner. So they know where to find it later? They killed my secretary. I don't know her. They dumped Billy Casselet in the river. It's
3: swimmable for the first time in years.
2: Look, doll. Sometimes you know it's over because it's over. And you and me are over before we started. It's hard. It's sad. But we got to face it. You and I need to go our separate ways, and maybe someday, a year from now, or five years from now, we'll pass on the street and think.
3: Hey, did you see those two squirrels? They're so funny. They're chasing each other all over the alley.
2: First of all, they're rats. Second of all, they're not funny. Nothing is funny. I'm trying to do a certain idiom here, and you're totally wrecking it. Now, either get sad or get lost. Get sad or get lost? That
3: is a great title. This is going to be the best noir movie ever, and I'm going to be a part of it. No, you're not. And now he was shot five times in the gut by Garrison Keillor, Colin McEnroe.
4: Well, first of all, yes, you, noir, which is what we're talking about today, is such a mood that you can't have a happy-go-lucky-bubbly person around, even. It just wouldn't it wouldn't work, would it? Uh, and, of course, Garrison Keillor. Uh, not to pile on some, with somebody who's already having a bad day, but Garrison Keillor—I mean, if you have to call your parody "Guy Noir," that's a little on the nose, don't you think? Um, and maybe a little bit uh, insufficient trust of your listeners. And anyway, the best parody of Noir, as we know, is Nick Danger uh, from Fireside Theatre. Maybe m- many of us grew up with that. We're going to talk about Noir today. I'm so happy to talk about Noir. It really is true. I'm—I'm I'm so easy. You know, you pretty much have me at noir most of the time. I loved the movie Brick, uh, which was uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's early movie. It's actually directed by the guy who just did the most recent Star Wars, but it's it's L.A. noir, but with high school kids. Um, I, I loved Bright, which just debuted recently on Netflix. Um, it's basically, once again, kind of an L.A. noir but it's, <laughs> but I'm laughing. It's the sort of the Lord of the Rings races. So you've got orcs and elves and stuff like that, but it's all cast up as, as LA Noir. Uh, and even though a lot of people didn't love it, I was hooked. I was a sucker. They had me. Um, I, I, I'm easy with Noir. I think some of it is growing up with Batman. Uh, Batman was one of the first things that I ever liked. And Batman obviously is Noir. So are a lot of things. I think you could argue, maybe we'll talk about this as we go when I shut up and let the guests talk, which will be soon, that. Uh, even though it's nonfiction, is noir, particularly in terms of that kind of interior monologue, the emphasis on process, uh, it, it, you could say that that's a nice evocation of certain elements of the noir genre. Now I will shut up and introduce Amy Bloom, uh, author of two New York Times bestsellers and children's book collections of short stories, essays. But most relevantly to today, she is the editor of the anthology New Haven Noir. Her latest novel, White Houses, is due out in February thir- on February 13th. Colin Harrison is joining us by phone, uh, editor-in-chief at Ed Scribner, the venerable... Um, uh, House of Publishing, and uh, he's author of many books as well, including most recently You Belong to Me, which I'm two-thirds of the way through right now and completely hooked. Please, Colin Harrison, don't tell me anything uh, about <laughs> what might happen, because uh, I really do need to know. Although, that's an interesting point. So let's begin with that. And, and Amy, I'll start with you. I mean, you could argue that noir is such a, a, a mood and an emphasis on process That maybe the outcome, the solution, which we want very much from Sherlock Holmes and and Agatha Christie uh, and Law and Order, none of which I would consider noir, sometimes it feels like the solution isn't exactly what we're talking about if there's a crime.
0: Well, I think that that's true. I think that the solution, first of all, in noir is almost inevitably going to be who betrayed our dopey hero. (laughs) And... um, you know, who took his eye off the ball in some usually misguided moment of heroism or some deep misunderstanding of what was arrayed against him or her. And so it doesn't become so much, oh my gosh, will somebody betray, you know, Nick or Nora danger as much as it is, who's that going to be? And how's that going to happen? And how is our hero, also our sap, going to be the architect of his own destruction? And that is more mood than bam, surprise, out of the box.
4: Amy, you also say our dopey hero. And I think there is something to that, that the, the heroes of noir are often, they're, they're not, you know, like Liam Neeson who has special skills. You know, they're these people who kind of take take their lumps, uh, get knocked out a few times, get in, and pick themselves up again and, and maybe keep going after it. But we're not really looking at some super skilled, multi-martial arts, sharpshooting uh, action hero genius, Right.
0: They are so not Jack Reacher. <laughs>
4: that's what I was going for. Yeah.
0: And why is that? My adore. Yeah. I love Jack Reacher. The bigger, the taller, the more insanely fearless, the better. But that's not that's not our people in noir. Our people, you know, they don't even have good posture, never mind amazing skills. So Colin
4: Harrison, uh, your protagonist uh, in this novel is uh, a guy with flaws, uh, and he's a guy with a monkey on his back. It happens to be not dope or booze or babes. It's maps. So tell us about that. Why did you, why did you pick maps? And tell us about Paul Reeves.
1: Well, um, Paul Reeves is like a lot of guys in the city. He's reached a certain age where uh, he's wise uh, by a function of his failings and uh, shortcomings. Um, he's risen as far as he's going to risen he may yet fall. Um, and uh, he's, he knows the ways of the city. He's cynical about the, uh, much of society uh, since he's operated in it. And over time he's developed uh, an obsession with maps of New York City. And he craves them and loves them and worships them and collects them. And the book uh, <clears throat> finds its um, Opportunity to begin uh, with his desire for a particular map that has suddenly appeared. And if he's going to uh, pursue it, other things are going to happen to him, uh, which he does not want to have happen.
4: Um, there's a way in which the, ma- the map thing allows the book, which takes place right now in, in some of the the considerations of the book, uh, particularly at, at the level of high finance is like high finance, the way it's operating right at this particular moment uh, and way over my head in some ways. But there's a way in which the map thing allows the book to have its feet planted in, in other times. And, and although when we get back to Amy, she's going to say that noir can happen anytime. Is there, Colin, for you, a sense that noir Needs to have at least some connection to the past.
1: Um, no, I don't think so. I think that um, I think that uh, I would agree uh, with Amy if she is, is going to say <laughs> You're that. You're going to agree uh, with me if that's what I go ahead and preemptively. Say. Yeah, if you were going to say that, which it, noir can appear in in any time frame. I do think though that. Um, Noir is infused with some kind of sensibility of uh, the failings of society or the corruption of society and, and that inevitably is an awareness of of time time past time lost, people lost, and uh, it 's part of the uh, the ambiance or the, the the flavor of noir.
4: But let's talk about this, Amy. Uh, the, the stories in, in your collection, New Haven Noir, they are all over the chronological map. Um, some are in the distant past. Some are right now. Some seem to take place uh, in a semi-recognizable future. So so and I, I've always thought, well, obviously, Blade Runner is a great example of noir and it takes place in the future. But just somehow you have to get grit and texture into that future.
0: Yeah, but our original image of grid and texture for noir is not something that was handed down with the tablets. It was because it was in the movies, and we saw it. And it was Fred McMurray, and it was Barbara Stanwyck, and it was, you know, a stacked heel and a seamed stocking and cigarette smoke and people who were not quite as bright as they needed to be. Um, and I think when Colin talks about his character who loves and adores and craves maps, that's our person in noir. Because to love and adore and to crave is to ultimately be possibly a hero and definitely a patsy. And that is central. Um, And the grittiness you can come up with in a lot of different time periods. Um, But it is always sort of a sense of anxiety, a sense of forces, much greater than individuals um a deep sense that it has always been unfair and it is always going to be unfair, and that doesn't really change whether it's nineteen thirty seven or it's nineteen ninety seven or it's fifty years in the future
4: um i'm going to ask both of you about this, but amy i 'll start with you. I think there's also often in noir a uh, a sense uh that uh, this flawed not entirely up-to-the-job hero is going against, up against something much bigger. You know, and the first thugs he runs into are working for somebody bigger who's working for somebody bigger who's working for somebody big and really evil. And, and, and so, you know, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown uh, mm-hmm. becomes this kind of paradigmatic shrug of the shoulders at the end, like they're just some games that are too big and you can't win. It's, it's what, ironically a way that you end your own East Rock uh, based story, so talk a little bit about that choice.
0: Well, I mean, I love Chinatown, and I, I, I do think that it's often a sense of forces arrayed against you. And I think one of the things that is maybe a little bit different in some noir versions now is that it is. Uh, not just a sense of one big shadowy figure, which you saw a lot in the early noir films, um, you know, but that, uh, you know, the implacable insurance company, but, but um, much larger forces now. There's sort of a, a greater sense that it can be a much bigger game, a more global game, certainly a more national game, and that the forces arrayed against you are not just the insurance investigator or a husband or a wife or even um, a smart police officer, that, it is, that there are bigger clouds on the horizon. And I think that's something you see more of now in noir fiction.
4: Hey, Colin, the, obviously that um, segues very nicely in, into your book. I mean, your book is about corruption and corruption at a very high level, not just of government but of society.
1: Yes, um I think that one of the things that <clears throat> has to happen in a successful uh noir story, <clears throat> excuse me, is that um the protagonist flawed as he may be, uh unknowing as he may be, has to somehow be the catalyst for uh an outcome that is uh involves uh the goodness or fairness or uh, resolution or punishment of someone bad and it's on a personal scale and does not solve or cure any of the societal problems that uh, created it uh, but that this resolution is what the reader is expecting and um, the protagonist uh, flawed and unknowing as he may be, does nonetheless um, depend upon his wits and perceptions to uh, do battle uh, in the form of a plot uh, with the forces arrayed against him. And we do expect uh, him or her to succeed, at least in a temporary uh, but but full and satisfying way by the end of the
0: story.
4: You know, we're going to oh. grab. A, okay, yeah, go ahead, Amy, and then we'll grab the break after I,
0: that. I, I think that that is one version of noir, and and one that I happen to like very much. But I think in a lot of noir fiction, we do see that our hero does battle, does use his or her wits, does wish to make something right or to punish a wrongdoer, but in the end fails, not just fails against the greater forces, but even sometimes fails against their most personally held goal.
4: Or sometimes choosing a smaller victory over a bigger one. Sometimes you, you know, per the end of Blade Runner, say, well, I'm just going to take off with a girl. I can't beat the other part of the system. Um,
0: And sometimes they don't even get the girl. Sometimes you don't even
4: get the girl. All right. On that uh, enticing note, uh, let's take a quick break here. We'll be back with more of Colin and Amy.
2: You go out and knock the horn, it's independence. Day.
3: But instead, I just pour myself a dream. It's got to be
0: love. I've never felt this. Way.
1: We're both of us sitting under the gallows. Now, why did you shoot Miles?
5: I didn't mean to at first. Really, I didn't. But when I found out that Floyd couldn't be frightened, I... Oh, I can't look at you and <laughs> you thought Thursby would tackle Miles and one of the other of them would go down. If Thursby was killed, you were rid of him. If it was Miles, you see that Thursby was caught and sent up for it. Isn't that right?
1: Something like
5: that. And when you found that Thursby wasn't going to tackle him, you borrowed his gun and did it yourself, right? And when you heard Thursby was shot, you knew Gutman was in town. And you knew you needed another protector, somebody to fill Thursby's boots. <laughs> so you came back to me. Yes. oh, sweetheart, it wasn't only that. I'd have come back to you sooner or later. From the very first instant I saw you, I knew.
1: Well, if you get a good break, you'll be out of Tehachapi in 20 years... and you can come back to me then. I hope they don't hang you, precious, for that sweet neck.
4: All right, we're talking about—that's the Maltese Falcon, obviously—we're talking about noir. We're talking uh, to two expert practitioners, Amy Bloom, author of many books, but most recently editor of the anthology New Haven Noir, Colin Harrison, editor-in-chief at Scribner, uh, and author of also many books, including most recently You Belong to Me, a, a absolutely noir novel. Uh, so I want to ask both of you this question. I mean, not, and I'll start with you, Colin. Um, noir never goes away, I mean, from the time that we could identify it as something, which which is probably you know, somewhere around World War II or right afterwards, it's, it's never really fallen out of fashion. Is there some way in which it might be having a moment right now?
1: Well, let me try to answer that in two parts. Um, I think one of the things that happened over time, and I'm sure Amy can add to this, is that the, uh, the interaction of movies, uh, jazz, jazz, and novels uh, had a kind of combinatory and recombinatory effect and uh, novels affected movies, movies affected uh, novels, music affected both and uh, noir found its way um, to a lot of new places including Scandinavia, various forms of urban noir, there's even Shanghai noir now, Uh, Southern California noir, not only Los Angeles, but uh, surfer noir. Um, I would argue that Alan First's novels about uh, World War II are very noirish. And something about the uh, the DNA of a noir story kept moving and finding new places, and people uh, responded to it. Um, you've mentioned a couple of uh, futuristic uh moments in noir. And I think that uh, people uh, like noir because it confirms that the world is rotten and that nonetheless uh, we are confronted with uh, moral situations which are ambiguous that need to be dealt with. And so right now in our time, uh, hmm, yeah, I think there's a lot of noir opportunity uh, and appetite
4: yeah. Once again, I mean, not to be too on the nose about this, Amy Bloom, but uh, it might be possible to construct a noir vision more easily in 2018 than it was in 2014. Uh, I mean, there there are just ways in which there's ways in which the president of the United States at the moment really seems as though he could be in somebody's you know 1948 noir novel or movie.
0: Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean. You can see the movie in your mind's eye in which we have this hideous caricature who nevertheless wields a lot of power and is wildly unpredictable and veers down roads you know, taking our hero places he never expected to go, having conversations that never occurred to him he would be having. And so that's not hard to see when you open the paper. Well, I also, I also but, wonder,
4: is he a creation of, I mean, I wonder if he thinks he's an, uh, a, a noir hero. I mean, in the sense that, you know, the, the those original ones, and he's roughly the same age as noir, right? Uh, and, you know, they were these guys who had to make up their own rules and maybe they had to slap a dame, you know, under certain circumstances. I mean, there's ways in which the really sort of retro white guy hero of the early noir,
0: maybe he thinks he's playing that out right now. Well, I'm, I mean, one would That's hate to speculate, enough. but I don't think, A, he's that smart, and B, white guy, retro, yes, check, check. Hero, not so much. Also, embattled hero, it's very hard for me to imagine that the president of the United States um, – from what we can see, thinks of himself as, you know, having small but important morals and standards, and making an effort. Yeah, I don't see that. Yeah,
4: this Mueller guy is trying to take me down.
0: Um, yeah, I will not be. I will not be editing the Trump Noir anthology anytime soon. <laughs>
4: well, not the ones that focus on, on him as hero, though. Well, you know, <laughs> Colin, there is a way in which the early noir do, is sort of a white guy as hero. Jessica Rabbit is, you know, the sort of uh, cartoon parody of the curvy femme fatale. Uh, there's a Peter Lorre character who's kind of ethnic uh, in a very nonspecific way, maybe, but probably represents some fairly recent wave of immigration. I, I don't know. There's a way in which the early noir is a little bit, um, and, well, not all that woke, as they say these days. Um, uh, what did you, well, how did you feel like you had to deal with that particular legacy?
1: uh you're you're giving me more credit than i uh deserve um i i wasn't <clears throat> trying to deal with any particular legacy uh i was just simply trying to tell a story the way that i thought i could tell it and the character that i chose uh was someone who uh knew his way around the city could find his way into the corners and the conversations and um was aware that trouble was around the corner, potentially, at any given time. So, um, you know, writers choose characters that help them uh, find the story uh, as they uh, believe in it. And um, it's, that's the way I write anyway, and I think that's the way most writers work.
4: You know, there's a way, Amy, in which noir also often vibes off there being two sides of the tracks, right? There's kind of the seedy side. That's often where the private dick is doing his work and stuff like that. But there's also these kind of glittering parties uh, going on at fabulous apartments or fa- fabulous mansions. And and New Haven is a little bit like that, right? There's the Yale New Haven, which is kind of the fabulous uh, and very well. <laughs> if you well, say so. well, it's a very let's say it's a very well endowed party. Um, sure. and, and then there's sort of New Haven, New Haven, which, as you point out in your introduction, involves, you know, some mobsters and and legless torsos and stuff like that. Is that some of the tension that you see as interesting if you're going to say that New Haven can be and can do noir?
0: Yeah, I think that I think New Haven has a lot of that kind of classic town gown and it also has a bunch of different tribes. And, you know, when I first came to New Haven, I was looking for a job as a waitress, and I went into a, a bar, and um, I noticed that most of the people in the bar, uh, first of all, most of the people in the bar were, were men, and uh, that most people in the bar were speaking Italian. And I was so pleased with myself and my girlish acquisition of Italian, and I went to the bar, and I went to the manager, and I said, I see you're looking for a waitress, and I speak Italian. And he sort of looked at me up and down, and he said... You're hired. You don't need to tell anybody you speak Italian. And that was my introduction to New Haven, where the dishwasher had a 38 in his waistband. And, um, and those were great jobs. I, I also want to just go back to the idea of the sort of the, the retro and the whiteness of the noir hero. That's not a linchpin. I mean, the fact that that's how we encountered that hero in his first incarnation doesn't really make that literature any different from most of the other literature that was coming out in the 40s and the 50s in the United States of America. And I don't think that's at at the center ever. I mean, I think Walter Mosley made that really clear that that is not at the center. And I think um, you look at Val McDermid's uh, Scottish mysteries, or there's a real hard-ass girl at the center who's come up hard and makes some terrible choices. I think that's an interesting artifact, and we are all familiar with the fedora and the trench coat. But that's—it's much more some of those other elements: the, the 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 struggle of the different forces, the flaws that lead one to try and also often to fail. I think that's more at the center of both the feeling and the process for for noir and New Haven to me I mean you know it's not a terrifying town but you know it it it, it manages to deliver Some dark corners. Yeah,
4: you can wrong foot New Haven. All right, we have to take a break right now. I have to say that uh, I'm just trying to get all my work done today so I can go home and finish You Belong to Me by Colin Harrison, which I will be finishing tonight no matter what other obligations may rear their ugly heads. Uh, But meanwhile, we're going to take a break right now. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the cinema part of this. So thanks to Colin Harrison. Uh, Amy's going to stick around uh, a little bit as we talk about the movie part of this, and we'll add yet another guest.
3: As I walked home, the lights were winking out in apartments, but my mind was glowing with questions. Who produced this show? Was it Betsy Fortunato or me, Lola Wolf? And what about Amanda Fish? Where did her slippery fins fit into this plot? And who is this guy, Kevin McDermott? And what was his game? Was that Robert Mitchum playing the part of Bill Curry? What was on the show tomorrow? Were they really going to do an episode on constipation? Forget it, Jake. It's Metamucil. Now, back to Colin.
4: We actually really are doing an episode about constipation tomorrow. I I can already tell you. If you are faint of heart, don't listen to the third and final segment of that show. Listen to this uh, third and final segment. Uh, Amy Bloom is still with us. She has edited New Haven Noir, a compilation of noir stories about the Elm City. Uh, Joining joining us now is Sherry Beeson, a professor of film history at Rowan University and the author of Blackout, World War II and the Origins of Film Noir and Music in the Shadows, noir musical films. So first of all, uh, Sherry Beeson, welcome very much to our conversation. Hello. Um, you know, we, it's a weird thing because there's something very profoundly to us American uh, about the noir genre. On the other hand, as the name suggests, it didn't really start here. So tell us about the origins of noir.
5: Um, well, uh, noir is interesting. It, it gets defined in many different ways. I would actually define it as a style. Uh, I, I, I would define it as something more complex than a, than a single genre. Um, a period style that transforms and influences many different types of genres. Uh, the term film noir is French. It literally means black film or dark cinema. And as you've been d- discussing, um, it describes these dark, shadowy uh, crime films from the 40s and 50s. Uh, these were Hollywood films. However, they were deeply influenced by earlier uh, cinematic forms of um, uh, particularly from uh, German and European, Eastern European, uh, especially immigrants. Um, uh, uh, other earlier film movements like German Expressionism, early 30s gangster films, you know, hard-boiled pulp fiction, uh, psychological horror films, and the like. Lots of different influences on um, uh, the noir uh, film style. And as I as I uh, uh, discuss in my research. Um, The wartime conditions in 1940s, uh, World War II Hollywood with the blackouts and the dim-outs and the rationing of the lighting, electricity and all of that, um, uh, deeply affected the look and feel and style and the uh, uh, shadowy, ominous uh, zeitgeist, if you will, uh, for film noir in the 1940s.
4: Um, I think here in America there's a sense that, once again, if we go back to sort of iconic noir, Mm -hmm. the protagonist is rarely, we were saying in the earlier segments, not only is he not Jack Reacher, he's not this superbly trained killing machine or something like that, he's, you know, Person of rather average abilities, yes. but maybe a good nose. And in America, he's also kind of a mug with a mug. He's Robert Mitchum, he's Humphrey Bogart. Yes. Uh, in the remake of Long Goodbye, he's Elliot Gold. He's not this classically handsome heartthrob, but I'm just, I don't know, Alain Delon or somebody. I mean, did the French do this differently? Did they have really handsome French uh, noir heroes?
5: Well, I think what's fascinating about film noir is that. Um, it's influenced by these earlier traditions, um, and it has a certain uh, uh, way of, of, of trans- cinematically translating, if you will, um, these hard-boiled uh, anti-heroes, right, out of uh, Hammett and Chandler and, uh, and so forth, right, um, and James M. Cain, uh, of course. Um, and uh, what's interesting during the World War II period in the 1940s is that you had a lot of younger men away serving overseas in the war. Um, in Hollywood, uh, and you had a lot of older actors and you know emigre actors as well as women, um, and so you know that also taps into the casting, the the the, the Hollywood you know film casting of the roles uh, that are inhabited you know cinematically right of these uh, hard boiled heroes, and and as you say yeah you you look at Bogart in a film noir. Or uh, you know, and uh, he's getting roughed up. The 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 self-destructive, tormented, more anti-hero, hard-boiled. Although he's hard-boiled, right? Um, he's getting roughed up. He's getting beaten up. He's getting hit, and and he's straddling kind of both sides of this sort of nebulous crime world. And he might be an ex-lawman sometimes, or a gangster, right? Um, so he's a very interesting figure.
4: Yeah. You know, we still got Amy Bloom with us. So, Amy, as I listen to, to Sherry talk, I guess what I'm also thinking, and I hadn't really thought about it this way, that the noir protagonist, whether it's a man or a woman, whether it's Easy Rollins or, or Philip Marlowe or some tough uh, Scottish uh, hero, female hero, it's us. Right. There's a way in which we're not. Luke Skywalker and we're not Liam Neeson and taken but we are we are this other person right and, and and there's maybe almost a kind of moral call to us like maybe you should step up this person is stepping up
0: Well I think that it's true that they call to us and we identify I mean if there is ever <clears throat> A, a great example of the idea of relatable that didn't make you want to throw up. It is the hero of noir because these are relatable people. As you say, they are us. But I don't think what makes them us is their heroism. I think what makes them us are their many flaws. And their errors in judgment and their self-deception and their self-aggrandizement and the way in which it leads them, you know, it's more the Greek tragedy part that makes us identify with them than any great success that they're going to have or any higher moral calling. It's more that way in which you see somebody say, yeah, I don't like being treated that way. I don't think that's right. I'm going to do what I think is right, but also I'm going to try to satisfy my own need for vengeance and, oh, oops, there we go. Slippery slope.
4: Right. So, uh, Sherry, I want to come back to this idea of World War II because, yeah, I think here in America, if somebody had asked me, I would have said, well, it's really post-war America uh, where you really start to realize that despite all the kind of saluting toward American or Euro- or Western European moral superiority over the Nazis or, or the Japanese during World War II, th- the game kind of resumes and the people who get really rich off of everything get rich off of this. So. If it really came of age during World War II, how did its subversive attitudes about that manage to to live in an environment where there was a lot of kind of saluting the the heroic cause of the USA or or England or France for that matter?
5: Well, I mean the origins, the roots of noir are, are, uh, are much earlier, actually. Right? I mean, uh, originally after World War One, right, with the with the you know Prohibition and the Great Depression um you had a lot of sort of existential angst and 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 darker uh you know darker uh, tones and, and you know this this kind of uh, culminating zeitgeist that you get coming out of you know prohibition and and and, and ap- post World War I uh the depression era but with World War II um there's all this uh paranoia um uh, at Los Angeles where they were filming in Hollywood was actually uh declared uh, a theater of war they thought that uh the west coast was going to be bombed and so they had all kinds of you know restrictions on how they could film they were rationing everything um, this materially contributed uh to the dark uh, feeling the dark visual style, if you will of film noir but also even when they're filming an I- iconic noir like say double identity um, they in that in that very claustrophobic iconic grocery store scene where they're all paranoid are they gonna to get caught having done the murder? Um, you know they were actually. Uh, they were actually had undercover, you know, cops and federal agents patrolling the set to make sure that the cast and crew weren't ripping off all the ration goods, right? So you have this embedded base of paranoia into the making of the film. What's interesting is that the uh, the darker noir zeitgeist and the paranoias and the fears that you get during World War II are, of course, very different than the sort of Cold War post-war zeitgeist that you get with the post-war, uh, you know, uh, noir films. You know, fear of the bomb, you know, with the, 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 the red scare and the blacklist and, and, and all of that. Um, so you get a lot of different sort of uh, thematic and, and, and iconic visual, uh, even, even the visual style of noir changes as you get into the post-war era, um, uh, the, the sort of darker, claustrophobic-contained soundstage stage uh, noir that you get in the, the, the war years, uh, uh, many times because of the wartime filming restrictions. When those were lifted and you can actually go out, you know, and shoot on location in broad daylight, you get a lighter sort of, some, some people call it kind of a film gris, sort of a semi-documentary, um, look and feel to noir. Even as you have those, you know, uh, uh, anti-heroic, you know, uh, noir figures and the femme fatales, you know, populating noir, um, you know, in the post-war era.
4: Yeah, well, I want to just make you backtrack a little bit because what we, the thing that you're saying is really kind of interesting that at least some of the visual tropes of Noir uh, may, may be the result of intention, but also are probably the result of what you could do uh, under production restrictions uh, in World War II. Talk about that. Talk about this, how some of these tropes are were necessities rather than than chosen features.
5: Well, if you look at a, a, a famous film like Double Indemnity, which was very iconic and definitive, an exemplar, if you will, of film noir style, uh, Billy Wilder's uh, 1944 film noir uh, co-written by uh, Raymond Chandler. Um, uh, what, what's interesting about that is uh, they, they had a famous, uh, the, rail, the railway sequence, where they're, you know, they had knocked off uh, Walter Ness and the femme fatale Phyllis Dietrichson have knocked off her husband, right? And they want to dump the body on the railroad track, and he's going to jump off the train. It's this elaborate scheme. And, of course, it's described in Keane's book. um, But when they were filming it, when you look at, I'm an archival historian, so when you actually look at the original production records from what the filmmakers when they were making the movie, um, what's interesting is that they they almost couldn't shoot that scene in Los Angeles due to the blackouts because they were using too much a light at a night shoot right so um they were almost going to scrap it and have to go to vegas and have to you know rent some real cars and kind of fake it but they were able to shoot that famous sort of murder scene um in los angeles at the railway station on location at night using very little light And, and and so that was really fascinating to me and my husband's an astronomer Um, And what's interesting is he was telling me that that period during the blackouts in wartime Los Angeles were known as the darkest period in astronomical history because there was very little light pollution. Um, So you could film on location um, if you did it at night. Uh, but with very little light. But they had, you know, uh, airway drills and blackouts and so forth. And there were all kinds of uh, rationing, um, not just of, you know, set materials and electricity and lighting and so forth, but of rubber and tires. And they had travel and location filming restrictions. You couldn't shoot, you know, the coastline or or planes or, you know, there were restrictions on trains and automobiles. For national security reasons, there were all of these kinds of um, constraints. And uh, when they were filming on location, double indemnity, um, when they shoot at uh, at uh, Phyllis Dietrichsen's house, the iconic, you know, noir, uh, you know, the Venetian blinds where they have the anklet sequence and everything. Um, basically, they were shooting at the art director's house, Hans, Hans Dreier. It was his house that they were that, that enabled them to film on location. And the next year, when they were shooting the 1945 uh, Michael Curtiz's Mildred Pierce, the, uh, both of these films are adaptations of the James M. Kane fiction, of course. Um, when they were shooting Mildred Pierce um, in order to uh, have this murder opening the film at the, at the beach house, um, that was shot at michael curtiz 's beach house and Despite the fact that they were shooting at the director 's beach house in Mildred Pierce during the war, and even despite the fact that this was late in the war in one thousand nine hundred and forty five they still had to submit the footage uh, for the snowmore to the military, to the to the Navy, and the military had to approve it because they were shooting the coastline um, before they could release the film. So there were all kinds of crazy restrictions like that uh, directly, you know, materially impacting the production conditions uh, in filming noir during the war years in the 40s.
4: Let's uh, actually, since we're uh, mentioning Double Indemnity, let's hear a, a little clip from that film just to get in the mood.
5: What you tell me was engraved on that anklet?
4: Just my name.
2: As for instance?
1: Phyllis?
5: Phyllis, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure? I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times.
0: Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband.
5: You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but... uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer?
0: I'd say around 90.
5: Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket?
0: Suppose I let you off with a warning this
5: time. Suppose it doesn't take.
0: Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles.
5: Suppose I bust out crying and put my head on your shoulder.
0: Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder.
5: That tears
4: it. Um, I, I'm going to go first over to Amy Bloom. As you listen to that, there's, there's, I mean, there's a couple of things going on that are worth talking about. One of them is let's start with the notion of the femme fatale. So this is maybe something that's a little bit more complicated uh, here in 2018 with the Me Too movement. Uh, for a long time, there is this notion uh, of a woman as a Venus flytrap as this kind of dangerous commodity, you know, and it kind of is spoofed a little bit with Jessica Rabbit, who says, you know, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. Uh, uh, Amy, maybe you sort of talk about, you know, that in a university town in 2018 uh, is probably not going to fly anymore. So what takes its place?
0: Well, I think there are a couple of things that take its place. One is that the problem with Jessica Rabbit, as I recall, was that she was also not the brightest bulb. And what you recognize with double indemnity, just from how long she allows herself to take to answer. Mm-hmm. You know, what makes her fatale is not just, you know, the guy's desire, um, which, you know, will we'll, we'll, in, the, in the story of the fame fatale, that will be his disaster. But it's that she is aware, she is mindful. She is actually not just a dangerous flower; she's a certain a, a consciousness. So I think when you flip it over to twenty eighteen, there are two things, two ways you can go. One is you can keep a femme fatale who has consciousness and agency and evil in her heart, and that's always a good character. I like those. Or you can flip it around so that the dopey, uh, greedy not as smart as she should be protagonist is now a woman. It's my favorite thing that Alice Madison does in her story in our New Haven Noir collection, which is that she makes the Fred McMurray character an ambitious, lust-blinded female psychologist, and she makes the femme fatale figure a very unlikely, good-looking, rumpled, evil-in-his-heart psychologist And she makes the stakes horribly and banally low, which is that he's going to a fancy conference and offers her a chance to give a talk and have her expenses paid and have a dalliance in a fancy hotel. And she falls for it just like Fred McMurray, hook, line, and anklet.
4: So, uh, Sherry, speaking of—but that was very nicely done, by the way, Amy. Um, but, um, as Sherry, as we uh, listened to Fred McMurray before he got Three Sons talking to Barbara Stanwyck, there's also this kind of banter that's going back and forth, as Amy is suggesting. Uh, and, and you could draw a line probably from that to Harrison Ford interrogating Sean Young in Blade Runner, where she, she has some really good comebacks to the questions that he poses to— try to establish whether or not she's a a replicant or not. Is that kind of bred into the bone uh, of noir, too, Sherry, that notion that people talk in a way that we wished that we talked? Uh,
5: Yes, Uh, that hard-boiled dialogue. I mean, mean, of course, it's coming out of the hard-boiled Pulp Fiction, uh, uh, you know, of that time, the the wonderful sort of Chandler-esque milieu that I think you get in uh, something like double indemnity, you know, co-adapting it with with, uh, Billy Wilder. And that dialogue, I I love that scene because that scene was not in James M. Keane's book. That scene was penned by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, the Anklet and all the double entendre and the sexual innuendo and the repartee, right? They're playing around. This is verbal foreplay, and they're playing around with the censorship of the period, getting around the censors. Um, You know, and it's all about, uh, you know, sex and let's get it on, right? Um, uh, And and none of it's in, in Kane's novel. But, yeah, you very much had that. Uh, verbal sparring. That was part of how uh, one of the many ways that film noir challenged the production code censorship of the period. Um, and you also get that in not just classic noir, but of course, uh, you know, neo-noir and even, you know, more contemporary films. And you mentioned Harrison Ford. Um, you know, I should mention you had women involved in the production process, as I mentioned in my Blackout book. Um, you have, uh, you know, people like uh, female writers and writer-producers, Um, like uh, Joan Harrison, Virginia Van Upp, uh, Catherine Turney co-adapted, Mildred Pierce. um, And uh, the adaptation of Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep was co-adapted by a young lay bracket, who Howard Hawks, the director, thought was a man, and he he cast her, and it turns out she's this young woman crime writer. Um, And uh, the the script for The Big Sleep, the classic noir with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, uh, was her first script, And her last script that she worked on was The Empire Strikes Back. Mm -hmm. That whole repartee, I mean, what a career, right? Your first script is a big script, your last script is Empire Strikes Back. And that whole verbal repartee between Harrison Ford and and Carrie Fisher, you know, you're a scoundrel, I think you like scoundrels, that's all... all very lay bracket and bracket esque, you know, and, and of course, Castor was working with her. It was kind of an homage, if you will, to lay bracket. Uh, 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 very hard boiled dialogue. Her dialogue was so hard boiled that Bogart nicknamed her Butch. Behave um, um, hey, Before very We tough. Sherry. Um, she wrote very, you know, hard boiled, uh, wonderful, uh, uh, you know, noir dialogue. And uh, you can see, uh, you know, the legacy of that in a lot of contemporary and you
4: know noir films. Well, I, w- I wanted to quickly, we're almost out of time, Sherry, but I, I mentioned Bright at one point, which I actually do think is a pretty good ev- evocation of noir set kind of in the immediate future, except that there's elves and orcs and stuff like that. I don't, are there other instances, uh, other things these days that strike you uh, as uh, as contemporary evocations or, or executions of noir? Oh, you
5: can see... Uh, the pervasive influence of noir in all types of contemporary films and across all kinds of different media right uh, certainly you know bright um, you, you see it in all kinds of uh, you know neo-noir films uh, the, the contemporary darkest hour was, was had some wonderful noir style uh, bridge of Spielberg's bridge of spies uh, recently that had beautiful noir style cinematography and, and and it brings out the whole sort of you know post-war Cold War 50s and early 60s uh, zeitgeist of uh, a sort of later incarnation of noir. Um, of course, you know, uh, Dark Alex Proyas' Dark City um, mm-hmm. from 98, the original Blade Runner, as you mentioned, wonderful uh, examples of sort of neo-noir Uh,
4: style. And I would also argue that, I said this earlier, but the podcast Serial, in some ways, used the noir style, that that interior monologue and uh, Amy, we're almost out of time here Amy Bloom, but there's a way in which um, uh, noir is a very attractive medium to the writer particularly if it gets translated to film, because of those interior monologues that voiced over narration the writer really gets to talk uh, in in an intriguing way. Is it fair to say, Amy, that it is a very attractive uh, genre for the writer?
0: I think it is. I mean, I think one of the things that really struck me when we were putting together this anthology is that there was no writer I asked, um, (laughs) you know, to do it who who said, "What, what do you mean? What what would that look like? Everybody was like, yeah, let me put my hands on that and make something dark.
4: And you certainly have some very prestige writers in this collection. we got to go now. There's some lonely trumpet music. That's always a sign that the noir movie is almost over. Thanks very much to uh, Betsy Kaplan for producing today, and great to talk to you, Amy, Sherry, and Colin. He
3: walked into my office, and he reeked of whiskey. I could see in his eyes his lust and desperation. I knew I had to play it nice, make sure he didn't feel threatened by such a powerful woman.
2: You know I can hear your inner monologue, right?